0: We made this discovery uh, in d- data taken starting in September of 2015. Mm-hmm. And at that time, we ran the detector for four months. And uh, the question I always get asked is, what uh, What was your reaction when you saw this event? And I said, <laughs> you know, we had this uh, big thing. You talked to Kip right afterwards. Mm-hmm. I- yep. If we had talked afterwards, I-, I wouldn't have said anything. But I can tell you now how, how I felt. My immediate reaction was worry and maybe almost semi-panic talking to people about dark matter and neutrinos can be funny
1: surely you're joking hopefully yes what a wonderful universe welcome to surely you're joking this is dr kevin peter hickerson today is a very exciting day for physicists This is the Super Bowl of physics today, when the Nobel Prize in physics is announced, the biggest prize you can ever get. A lot of people spend their entire careers working towards this. My guest today is one of those gentlemen, Professor Barry Barish. Uh, I can't possibly remember all the awards you've won in the last year, and yeah. unfortunately, not having internet, it's very hard to introduce you, but I think the uh, thing that's going to make this the most exciting is that I have very high confidence that tomorrow or the day after, you'll probably be a Nobel Prize winner, so uh, welcome Hi. to the show. Hi. <laughs> Hi this I, is I, Professor I don't, Barry I don't know
0: anything about the latter, actually. It's <laughs> completely a mystery.
1: The Nobel Prize? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I made a wager on it, so. <laughs> oh, I see. So the, you, the other awards that
0: you, you talk about, uh, we understand pretty much the process and there's.
1: Oh, they tell you ahead of time. It's not. Well, so, they, uh, first
0: they tell you ahead of time, but also they have a process where they get referees and this and that, so you know what's going on pretty much. Uh, that you're your candidate.
1: Yeah, uh, I've heard stories that people but, get called in the middle of the night or. Oh, something for, the, for this one, for a yeah, Nobel this prize, is that's yeah. a complete.
0: <laughs> you know, mystery. I don't think anybody understands it, including uh-huh. myself. I remember I, last
1: year I went by your office and you, you were the one who was like, no, there's no way we're going to get it uh, that year because, and everyone else thought you would, but you gave the best reason. It was like, well, we didn't publish by the time they decided. So that, there's that's no right. way.
0: That's right. They'd have to, they, it may be that people told them before because it wasn't a total secret, but it was uh, the end of January that uh, was the deadline uh-huh. uh, each year, like the last day in January. And, our release of our well, our discovery was in September of 2015, but we w- didn't have the publication until Jan- mm. uh, February 11th, so it was two weeks after the deadline.
1: Yeah, so this was uh, this was fantastic. Uh, we actually interviewed Kip Thorne the day that you guys realized you had discovered it, and we had the entire conversation. You mean in September? Yeah, September of uh, 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 of uh, 14 uh, or 15. I can't. I, I don't know what his reaction was. Well, he was really good at. Uh, at keeping it secret, uh, although he's, uh, he hinted at it a little bit. He wasn't but, supposed to, but, but he...
0: <laughs> but now we don't have to keep it a secret. Right? My, my my reaction was panic, kind of. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, some of my colleagues have immediate reaction. So what, what is it? We, we basically have a, a, an online way of seeing if we might see something that could be interesting mm-hmm. by having a... a interesting Reddit. being a, a black uh, be, hole collision n- Not necessarily, and... but, but something that probably is physical, that is way beyond the normal noise that we see. So we we basically have a a threshold at some 10 times the noise that we normally see, which then only triggers once every few weeks or a week or so. It's usually junk, of course. Uh, But then we have a little better way of looking at it with... You know, some fancy mathematics using wavelets and so forth that it might have not just a random shape, but mm-hmm. might be something.
1: Although that that mathematics is not totally unimportant, because uh, you know it's it's important to to get to to separate noise out. There's a yeah, lot of yeah, work put yeah. into making sure it was wavelets and not uh, just some exactly. Straight, so like so, a, so a more no- naive noise can be just
0: something. some sort of spike or something that you know happened because a something bumped the apparatus or something like that. And that usually has a characteristic just spike when we're looking for yeah. something that maybe has a little more shape.
1: And you guys had a lot of, uh, a lot of time to record noise because most of the yeah, time and I was and so, Caltech, so that was so all we, that was Yeah. There. So we've
0: been doing this since <laughs> 2001 or something. When we first put together the initial version of LIGO and then we listened for noise for roughly six months and then lick our wounds, didn't see anything. And, uh, spend another six months figuring out what limited us and making it better. And and we did that six times for the initial version of LIGO before we went through a complete rebuild, which Mm -hmm. we called LIGO 2 and the NSF should rename it because that probably means that we're into LIGO 3, 4, 5. Uh. <laughs> so we called it Advanced LIGO. I so that's where the name yeah. Advanced LIGO uh, came okay. was the NSF insisting they didn't like LIGO 2.
1: Because they didn't want to look like it was an ever-ending it, prototype Yeah, or yeah. Okay. Not, not, <laughs> well, funny. looking
0: like it's a series that they, they're uh-huh. absolutely committed through this next one if they fund it, but you know, nothing beyond that. Uh, okay. And LIGO, <laughs> when you've had LIGO 1, LIGO 2, that feels like you're mm. probably going to be there for LIGO 3. It Sounds like
1: you're already you know, when you go see a movie and it uh, yeah. it's already set up for a sequel, you could just kind of tell. <laughs> yeah.
0: So now we're in this position that we want to go for the next version. And, and uh, we're improving anyway, but uh, next big... Upgrade in the next few years. But now that you found something. But what do you name it after uh, you've had advanced LIGO? It's going to be super advanced or or, uh, or well, something different. Maybe you so can focus
1: they, on the new exciting part, uh, which is that now you can really use it like a telescope, right? So uh, maybe there would yeah, be some sort of. Yeah,
0: I'm a physicist, so I kind you of. You don't even, care. I'll, I'll, well, I do. <laughs> I do. But I think the astronomers who always were dubious of us for years all of a sudden have embraced us. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's okay, but it still, it's also, it's a physics instrument. It's the place where we can test general relativity in the best way possible, and so I don't want it to be lost as an uh, as uh, astronomical instrument. It's really both.
1: Um, in fact, I guess right away there was uh, a little bit of speculation from some astronomers. I saw that uh, kind of by, by chance you guys got a really large black hole collision, but very quickly. And so I saw some astronomers who studied uh, limits on machos um, suggesting that there was even a possibility, just in that initial window, there was a possibility that these might actually, yeah. there were way more than we thought, <laughs> and that they could actually be yeah. dark matter.
0: So, so uh, machos are a, a, a name for a, a kind of explanation for dark matter. Mm-hmm. And, Massive?
1: Uh, Orbital—I uh, don't remember. Uh, <laughs> I forget. Uh, so the halo objects is in yeah, there somewhere.
0: Yeah, and so that's one possible scenario. There's many for for the dark matter, and now we're one because um, these dark these black holes that we found are much heavier than we kind of within astrophysicists thought could exist mm-hmm. uh, because. They're what we call stellar black holes. So Mm. they come from the collapse of a heavy star, much heavier than our own,
1: Mm. as opposed to supermassive black holes. Supermassive black holes at the center
0: of the galaxy. Mm. We call them all black holes because they basically, you know, phenomenologically, they're they have so they're so dense that they have such strong gravity that nothing can get out. So we Mm. call that a black hole. But they may have a very different origin. You can end up with that in in kind of mathematically, but. Uh, they can have and these are ones that are, we think are born from the collapse of a star. Our own star, our, our sun, if it collapses is can't make enough density to be a black hole it's mm-hmm. too light. so we know that it has to be two or three times the mass of our sun before you, you could possibly have enough density when it collapses to make a black hole so mm-hmm. Our so, sun won't do that, but heavier stars will. However, if they get too heavy, I'm not talking about like supermassive, but if they get more than tens, uh, if they get into the tens, it's hard for them to exist because sun, stars, uh, if they're too big, the outer layers are interact with everything around them and kind of fall apart. So that uh, stellar black holes were thought to exist up to 10, 15, maybe solar masses, and here we found... The ones we found were each 30 and ended up combining to make 60 solar masses. Mm-hmm. So this is a big surprise. Uh, that stimulated a lot of thinking about what they might be. Some from astrophysics, you know, what's what? how could you be consistent with not having big stellar objects and still have them? So that required new thinking. And the other was what you mentioned, that maybe they're primordial, mm-hmm. that they came before the rest the even galaxies and yeah yeah, yeah. Just and formed they out earlier. Of the big earlier it's directly. formed out of the big bang mm-hmm. and if so maybe that's a second extrapolation maybe mm-hmm. they uh, are a part, or all of the dark matter so there's several
1: and i guess this is the problem we end up running into the same problem we have in particle physics where it's very hard to to Study the intersection of particle physics that happens at the you know standard model of particle physics that yeah, dominates the yeah, beginning of the universe, yeah, but also yeah. general relativity yeah, at the same time. Those yeah, two are, yeah.
0: The the well, you know, if you ask me, you know, what's my dream for this this subject in the long term? Not what we can do. It's that the biggest puzzle for physicists, I think. Period, is that we have two wonderful theories of physics: one that works at very short distances, which is quantum field theory, and describes the Higgs particle, particle, all the particle physics at large accelerators, nuclear physics, and so forth. And then we have a completely separate theory based on geometry that comes from Einstein. That's Mm -hmm. general relativity. And never the twain shall meet. They basically are two theories. We can't put them together in any way. There's people that work on quantum gravity, but there's no real hint. Mm -hmm. And Uh, experimentally, it's uh, just, there's a huge desert there. And and experimentally, uh, we give no guidance. And me being an experimentalist, (laughs) I think it's, it's, if you can't give any guidance, don't believe in what you're going (laughs) to have. And so there's a lot of string theorists that think maybe they can explain the the bridge. Mm -hmm. But string theory is a little absent of predicting anything in nature, really. It's Mm -hmm. a beautiful theory. It's hard. (laughs) I took it. It was hard. So my dream, (laughs) not for us in LIGO, but in the future of this field, is that we'll start seeing, we have this new laboratory to study black holes, so what better place can you study both, if you could do it, both uh, gravity or general relativity in its its limiting form in the strong field, and particle physics, where you've got this thing that, that has absorbed quantum numbers and did all kinds of things, so it, to me, is the one place where experimentally you could hope someday, to get maybe some hints how these two subjects come together, because it's not going to happen by just somebody dreaming it up, probably. And um, so I think that's the long range, from the physics standpoint, that's the long range hope that I mm. would have. In the shorter term, we can test general relativity for the first time mm-hmm. and see whether it's you know Einstein's or some other form of and general. And relativity. so far, it's on
1: track, right? So <laughs> far, it's on
0: track, but if you've only seen. What we, is it, four? We reported four, four <laughs> events. Then uh, it's uh, hard to test uh, general relativity much, you know, really quantitatively. What we've seen is we've tested it in a couple of different ways, which is interesting. One is maybe, since this is a theory of gravity, maybe gravity or waves they come with gravity uh, are like, electromagnetic waves, they have a particle associated with them, the photon. And Mm -hmm. so maybe there's something called a graviton. That's not, of course, in Einstein's theory. And we test for that because if there was a graviton, then if it has any mass at all, it changes the form of what we, we observe. And we've been able to test that it's smaller than I don't know ten to the minus twenty-three eV over c squared. That's a number, but the number sounds small, and it is small. And,
1: and that will, number and, will get smaller. And, and, and smaller, that number yeah.
0: will get smaller. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so, we can't
1: look for anything so, even close to that in particle physics. It,
0: right. Yeah. And but it may not be as simple as just a, a particle. So we try to test in a more generic way uh, deviations from general relativity. And Mm -hmm. so far, it it all fits fine. But I think, uh, you know, the future will get much, much more information, not just more events, but events that have more detail. Mm -hmm. So if we make the device 10 times better, then instead of seeing this famous first event that we saw, which is the most uh, powerful, Mm -hmm. we see 24 times our average noise. So this signal was 24 times bigger than the average noise that we see. That's impressive, but it's not still, when you think of trying to see small deviations from a theory, it's not the best you can do. So, So having, if we could be 10 times more sensitive, which we will be eventually, uh, then we'll see events that are 200 times. Then the details of one single event can be very powerful.
1: Oh, okay. So uh, you guys compare against uh, like a really advanced computer model, basically, or of yeah, examples. Yeah and, then, yeah. and then you sift through it and, and look for. Some- well,
0: well, as I said, when we looked for the first event, f- luckily for us, we didn't have that working online. And I mean luckily for us because it didn't prejudice the result, which makes it easier to convince others. We just looked we were just looking for some large excess that had some form that might be physical. And uh, that okay. meant we use this wavelength form. Mm-hmm. We weren't quite we were very early in the running of advanced LIGO and we didn't yet have instrumentally something that mocked uh, mocked that looked like the calculations that general relativity would mm-hmm. give. A so called in spiral form and a coalescence that is what you expect from an spiraling converging event mm-hmm. so um, but we do that afterwards coming coming back to what you say so afterwards when we fit the data then we use general relativity to calculate it and uh, when we and we use general relativity to look for events actually through the data when it isn't online and to do that we have to take all the possible masses that each would have, you know, if there's a binary system, all the orientations and spins and so forth. And every single piece of data in LIGO has 250,000 templates that we compare with the data and see if any one of them gives a really significant match. Oh, wow. And, and can you generate and more And we in can't detail do that. After? We can't do that by the classical way you calculate general relativity because it's just too many calculations. Mm-hmm. So that's where we use uh, approximate methods but have to use... Uh, Numerical methods to do general relativity, and that was the big breakthrough that happened in general relativity.
1: Yeah, when I was a, a undergrad, that was uh, yeah, an open problem. And that was, was an open problem then, and, I was very and by the time interested. you were <laughs> by the time
0: you were a graduate student, yeah,
1: uh, it had been done. There was a yeah. there was
0: a breakthrough, yeah, and mm-hmm. people learned how to do it on a computer. Yeah, I, I
1: feel that uh, QCD is in a similar situation because right now we have this you know model lattice QCD. Um, which is – it reminds me a lot the, – the results that come out of it remind me a lot of the way people were trying to get results from the black hole simulations before the problem was really, you know, so stabilized and everything. So people could simulate stuff, but then it would kind of just – Explode and you'd get all this noise yeah, and yeah, nonsense. Yeah, yeah, I feel like QCD is really in that same position right now. It doesn't yeah. make any good predictions. Which <laughs> yeah. is a big problem. So,
0: so QCD you can do hand calculations. Yeah, quant- or, uh, quantum or, chromodynamics. Or, right. yeah, yeah, quantum chromodynamics sorry. is the way to calculate strong interactions between particles and mm-hmm. particle physics. All the and
1: the particles bubbling inside of nuclei. And yeah, like and the and the
0: quarks and mm-hmm. glue and so mm-hmm. forth and so on. But the calculation of the strong quantum what's called quantum chromodynamics can be done by hand or you try to do it by computers Uh, and I think as you said the computer one isn't giving any more insight so far than the hand one the difference between that theoretical calculation on a computer and ours in general relativity is we had to learn how to do algorithms that would allow you to calculate it uh, uniquely, like in general relativity, general relativity has the problem that it's all of space-time. It's very difficult. You get fake singularities yeah. called coordinate singularities. The, mm-hmm. the calculations where are the, incredibly difficult.
1: Yeah, where the numbers reach infinity yeah, just yeah, anywhere just, in space, just because and, of the way yeah. you calculate it. So,
0: teaching a computer to calculate it where it doesn't get fooled was the problem. Mm-hmm. For and eventually there was <clears throat> there was a breakthrough. Uh, how to do that, and that's what we use now. And so we can use what's called numerical relativity to calculate it. It takes a lot of computing, but not the problem of quantum chromodynamics. And quantum chromodynamics, instead of developing a better algorithm, the attempt was to develop special computers that could do the problem, Mm -hmm. and uh, uh, large arrays and so forth. And so there's uh, a fair amount of money that's been spent to develop special computing. Mm-hmm. And it always looks promising, but so far it hasn't really caused the same kind of breakthrough
1: yeah we uh, for my thesis work we we rented some time on the Los Alamos computer, and uh, you can get an answer to about yeah, <laughs> twenty percent whereas the, the thing you can measure you can measure to uh, yeah, ab- about yeah, a part in a thousand yeah, yeah, <laughs> so so yeah, right now the, our ability to predict is nowhere it, near yeah the, exactly
0: uh, oh. uh, and uh, uh so so for us, we have the tools now to be able to uh, calculate very accurately what general relativity would say, which allow which helps us search because we can create these two hundred and fifty thousand templates uh, they're not all perfect. we still have work to do there if the if we have for example a uh, binary system but the the spins are oriented in a funny way or the masses between the two of them are very very different, then the calculations don't work very well. so we still have work to do there but but, we can do most of the kinematics. What we can do—that's even more important—is afterwards, we now can calculate general relativity well enough that we can try to take and do a really uh, to learn the detailed physics of the coalescence itself. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and in the future, as we get better and better signals, we can we can do it even even better in testing general relativity and maybe. Looking at alternate theories and so forth, so that's the that's the future.
1: So you mentioned to me earlier that uh, you every, you've worked here pretty much your whole career. Um, yeah. So ca- we have that in common because I yeah. <laughs> I mean, our, I've, our, I've our, left, but uh, I've, I've, yeah. I've always come well, back. Well, quickly. <laughs> well,
0: I was away, and then I came here. So, oh, okay. so for me, I I was a high school kid in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Uh, Las Vegas oh, wow, Area. yeah, you are very local. And so as a as a kid, uh, I didn't come from an educated family, so I didn't know much about science except the uh, the pillar was Caltech. And so I thought I wanted to go to Caltech, but I didn't know anything really. I applied to Caltech. Uh, but I, I was a student in the LA city schools in at the time that they still had a January uh, graduating class. Mm -hmm. So I graduated in January, but Caltech didn't admit students, they didn't have early admissions then, they didn't admit students until March or April, whatever it is, and you had to come in September. So I went to Berkeley to pass time, I thought, uh, waiting to see if I got into Caltech in in the spring, but by, that was January, by whatever it was, March or April, I fell in love with Berkeley, Uh, I fell in love with a classmate, a girl, and uh, uh, there was no way I was going to come to Caltech. I did get admitted, but I didn't come. Uh, And then, uh, so I stayed in Berkeley, and in Berkeley, I I was a particle physicist, and uh, at that time, all the great discoveries were up at the radiation lab, the Berkeley, uh, Lawrence Berkeley Lab, which had a different name then, Mm. where they had the big bevatron and cyclotrons and so forth. And so- Making heavy elements and things like that. And so when it, well, and and, uh, during my time is when they discovered the antiproton, my thesis advisor was Owen Chamberlain, who got the Nobel Prize for studying the- well he was unavailable I had a thesis advisor who (laughs) I could barely get Uh, not thesis advisor this is undergraduate undergraduate research advisor oh okay Uh, and then uh, I went I decided I went to graduate school there because they took me even though you're supposed to go away uh, but they took a couple of us the Mm. year that I graduated from Berkeley and so I stayed in graduate school even though I might have come here or somewhere else Uh, and then but when I graduated from from Berkeley as a post as a got my PhD I came here and I've been here ever since so <laughs> my whole career one and my only real job except for summer jobs as a high school student was uh, has been my job here so uh-huh. my only employee has been employer has been
1: Caltech what were you working on before LIGO uh, we're you still doing particle physics I did particle did physics
0: uh, I came here to do particle physics and I did particle physics uh, uh, varying from work on the big accelerators and even design of accelerators, which I've done since. Mm-hmm. Uh, as an undergraduate, I worked on the uh, 184-inch cyclotron up at the Lawrence Berkeley Lab and learned how the machines worked. And mm-hmm. So I've always worked both on machines and particle physics itself.
1: Was uh, Berkeley a, a nuclear free zone, like they claimed there? That's always a. When I went to visit the lab, they always thought that was kind of funny. Because yeah, <laughs> well,
0: Berkeley, Berkeley is Berkeley, and I was there during the free speech time, uh-huh. and uh, uh, it was a pretty interesting <laughs> environment. Uh, so.
1: Yeah, they're still having their their controversies there. Yeah, now the other way their, now. The speaker, yeah. the
0: speakers, instead of being uh, free speech speakers, instead of being left wing or super right wing. <laughs> uh, which uh, instead of the administration being the resistance, which was true in, in my day, it was left-wing uh, activist students, mostly against the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. uh, and the administration trying to contain that in their way. And now it's the other way, I think. Right. It's, yeah, uh, 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 it's Right-wing free speechers. Uh, right-wing free speechers and Berkeley students who tend to be more mm-hmm. uh, left-wing uh Causing a lot of resistance or a lot of issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I still love Berkeley. Actually. I love it too. I actually yeah. went there in
1: a, for a summer and I really uh, liked it. It, I, it was one of my place. best summers. Yeah. Uh, I took a class there. I actually, took the, the history of protest movements, which was very oh, really. Yeah, it really it was very helpful because it it was uh, rather than being I thought it was a good school for it because they didn't yeah. teach a class like that here. So
0: who did they have that taught it?
1: Uh, I can't remember. No. I'm sorry.
0: When I when uh, I was a Uh, a grad student in Berkeley uh, before I graduated the leader of the uh, free speech movement was actually a physics student it was Mario Savio Uh who was a very good but a little older undergraduate he was my age but he was an undergraduate this
1: guy was really young at the time he was just a little bit older (laughs) than the class (laughs) but it was great because he talked about when free speech movement or sorry when protest movements work when they don't how you know what, we analyze which ones collapsed and which ones succeeded. And um, I think actually a lot of people would be wise to, to study up on that <laughs> because sometimes they don't work and they backfire yeah. or, they, you know, they... Um.
0: Well, well, Berkeley's been a good laboratory for that because it's had empirically a whole series of them, including in the city, the, the city council and the city and the rules in the city. There's been protests from the time I was an undergraduate yeah. and...
1: Yeah. One thing I definitely got the impression of um, when I was there uh, is that a lot of people, that's why they go to Berkeley. So it's so it's almost inevitable they're going to be protesting um, something maybe. because that's yeah. kind of like yeah. part of the culture. So I don't know. <laughs> um, I see a lot of like alarmism about people thinking that this is something that's going to like, that there's going to be violence in all these schools. And I just, I, I don't, from my experience being there, I don't think that's really true. No, I think no, it's I, just I Berkeley people like to to. So say their mind <laughs> no matter what. Yeah, I, I think an you're right. It, it's with, built into the culture. Yeah. Of, uh, and it's a good place for it. Really. Yeah. Um,
0: and Caltech's different, it's an island of yeah. science.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, sometimes I get into arguments where people say, oh, that's just because if I have some opinion that's considered too left-wing or something. I'm not even a very liberal person, to be honest, but occasionally I'll get the, oh, college just makes every, you know, you college elitists think that everything is like that. And I'm like, you know, Caltech is not like <laughs> most yeah. colleges. Yeah. I don't know what you think is, because yeah. I've compared the two, and they're complete opposite extremes in terms of that. I would say most uh, Caltech students, and it's very apolitical no. in a way. But. yeah.
0: Uh, well I come from the a family before that and uh, the Berkeley tradition so I tend to be more of an activist but uh-huh. but uh I am to do now? my son- uh, yeah yeah
1: Oh okay. You uh, uh, been uh, telling me about it? <laughs> uh,
0: well I Like per- people like hearing about that. I, <laughs> I, I, I marched I like to march with a uh, I don't like to do, do that so much anymore but I I I belong to a lot of uh, activist organizations and Believe in everything from you know Amnesty International to free spe- any free speech or, or the women's movement after uh, our present president took mm-hmm. over and so forth. So I, did you go to the, I, the and science? I march? In, and I live in, yeah. My no, my wife went to the science march at oh, my okay. urging, but uh, <laughs> I'm not, I guess she would have done it anyway. But I live in Santa Monica, and, mm-hmm. I, and Santa Monica tends to be a, a activist oh, a, yeah, area. Oh yeah, absolutely. So.
1: Uh, until you get to the Venice beach part and I, I come here to I
0: come here to Caltech to do my science which I love too so I mm.
1: I think that's the main reason Caltech's not very political I don't think it's uh, an issue with politics it's just that people here are very focused on being uh, a-
0: and size uh, and size I think I think it takes a critical mass of people to to do
1: anything oh yeah because yeah if it's, it's just some t- fraction of the population that's protesting yeah. that it could just be two yeah. or three people yeah. <laughs> that was one of the things I, I loved about Berkeley when I was there is that there was it seemed like there had to be a protest about anything and so but a lot of the issues weren't important and yeah. so there'd be no. like ten people there yeah. right. that's the only, right. I think that's the only so place in the that's world what I meant. Yeah. It was,
0: it's kind of built into the culture there whether it's got to do with parking in the city right. or something <laughs> right. else there's something going on all right. the time there'd be and, some yeah. minor issue yeah. and there'd be a little
1: crowd well, well minor to you but minor not, to, to, those, not yeah.
0: to those ten people who are doing it and if it was here and it was the parking at caltech uh there'd be one or two <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, so it doesn't work but, it, but 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 it, uh, uh as you said a place depending on its culture attracts a certain kind of people and berkeley mm-hmm. has got that culture
1: yeah so i know some people have been asking me about uh neutron star <laughs> collisions and yeah. uh so i have two questions one is have you seen neutron stars and then the, the follow-up is uh have you released all the data, or like, are we going to be surprised with new events? Or are you just are you yeah, picking, yeah. hand-picking so, ones okay. to release that so you So know, that's but, a multi-part question. Yeah, which, sorry. <laughs> so we,
0: we made this discovery uh, in data taken starting in September of 2015. Mm-hmm. And at that time, we ran the detector for four months. And uh, the question I always get asked is, what, uh, what was your reaction when you saw this event? And I said, <laughs> you know, we had this... Uh, big thing. You talked to Kip right afterwards. Mm-hmm. I, yep. If we had talked afterwards, I, I wouldn't have said anything, but I can tell you now how, how I felt. My immediate reaction was worry and maybe almost semi-panic. Uh, mm-hmm. um, we weren't ready. We were ready, actually, but, you know, we weren't mentally ready we were technically ready
1: and, and you had already had a bad experience too with the a paper being written i think that oh no happened? no
0: no that that well i'll come to that so okay. so uh that wasn't a bad experience people just don't understand it so oh, okay. uh, so I'll uh, I'll uh well so that's a bad experience <laughs> but uh any, anyway we started we were we had uh, we had fixed We had redone the whole apparatus after six tries, starting in 2001, where each time we'd run for some number of months, and then we'd lick our wounds and fix it and make it better, know what limited us and make it better, and then run again. And we did this a total of six times with the initial LIGO that we had, never saw anything, which is good in the sense that we didn't get fooled by anything. So we knew we weren't limited by by us. We just weren't sensitive enough to see anything. And we had started working early on on how to make a better detector, but it required really turning off and rebuilding the guts of this interferometer, this very sensitive interferometer.
1: It's basically a a big hollow tube in the ground, most of it. It's a big hollow tube
0: where we send light in two perpendicular directions and measure very accurately how long it takes to go down one and go down the other. If 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 it's equal, they come back and it cancels each other. That's what an interferometer is, and if one arm gets a little longer than the other or shorter than the other, then they don't completely cancel, mm-hmm. and we see some light. And that, uh, and we do this with lots and lots of light, so that we a little if a little bit comes through, it might be that one arm got longer, one arm got shorter, and that's exactly what happens when there's a gravitational wave. It mm-hmm. distorts space-time in a way that one arm gets a little longer and the other a little shorter then it reverses in the with the frequency of the gravitational wave. So the, a little the, light comes through. So we usually sit. The bigger,
1: the bigger problem, though, being that a lot of other things, anything yeah, that yeah. shakes it also so, does so, it. So, so we earthquake, sit usually, so. and it's
0: totally dark, except for yeah. the fact that there's natural things that make it slightly different, and that's what we call the noise. Okay. And, uh, and we keep working to make that smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, and we did that for six tries in initial LIGO. Never detected anything. Uh, Somehow the NSF kept funding us, which Mm -hmm. is a miracle.
1: How do you work on something that long, just (laughs) year after year, knowing your goal is so You can work on something that long (laughs) if you
0: have a real dream and you believe in it. And you don't have a kind of uh, um, emotional set that requires you to have uh, what maybe a psychologist would call instant gratification. Mm-hmm. So you're saying he would he, not be a good candidate yeah, to work yeah. on this he needs, <laughs> he needs instant gratification, <laughs> whether somebody claps or whatever. But not all of us need gratification, but but I'm saying in the extreme, And so... We have, did a lot along the way. That if you're an experimental physicist, gives you a lot of gratification. Making things more sensitive, yeah. it's a fantastic device. And uh-huh. so there's a lot of, uh, and we published all the things you need to do. But stick to itiveness mm-hmm. is something that's built into some people more than others. <laughs> and uh, uh, and as I say, you don't need really. Instant gratification, basically. Right. Job
1: security seems like it's also an important part. And the reason I mentioned this is because now I'm in the academic job search, and I know there's a trend to just push, uh, you know, things like uh, tenure. Sort of, it's kind of dissolving away. I don't know if you're aware of this, uh, but it's getting less and less popular at various schools, and schools are hiring people later and later to give them tenure. Um, yeah. And do you worry uh, uh, that that uh, might stop this kind of research where? Uh, I mean, like you said, people are publishing, so maybe it's not, you know, it's not I, a big I think, deal. <laughs> I
0: think people do what they love, and the big problem here isn't tenure. Although people worry about it, and I, I, I don't want to dismiss that. I think young young people have a very uncertain future in terms of what the whether the rules are going to change under them, whether schools are going to expand like they did during my era because of the baby boom. Uh, and so, whether there will be jobs and so forth—that's that's all real. But somehow, there's going to be physicists, and people are going to be doing this. So, in terms of what we're talking about, which isn't the social and jobs security, the problem is much more whether the government will fund it.
1: Right. Yeah. And, and those are related. And and they're related yeah, they're related. And but I think the, the big
0: difference that I think now to talk seriously for one minute now that's different than when we got it. We got Funded for LIGO in 1994, Mm -hmm. for a lot of work was done before that, Mm -hmm. and all the design and things that uh, my colleagues Ray Weiss and Ron Drever did were earlier. But the funding, the big funding that Congress would pay attention to and the taxpayers and so forth, started in 1994, and we've had been fund been. Altogether, over the years, uh, it adds up to more than a billion dollars that's gone into LIGO. That's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And you only have to go back two years. We had done nothing. It's not true. We published articles and made a sensitive (laughs) instrument, but nothing that would justify $1.1 billion. Well,
1: although here's the funny part. Uh, The public probably a lot of time—I mean, obviously, the discoveries are very important to the public. But I noticed that there's a tendency for scientists to see— the science part as the only thing that's worthwhile, whereas right, the poet—I right. mean, there was a lot that came out of that billion right, dollars that right. had nothing to do with the science. Right, because right. now we know how to make one of yeah. these devices, and yeah. that has all kinds. Yeah. of, of Yeah, there's an incredible amount
0: of technology. Uh, there's uh, incredible amount of know-it, oh, uh, what learning how to do things that mm-hmm. came out of it. Um, there's the uh, and there's a certain amount of science that comes out of not seeing things, mm-hmm. uh, because that limits what people's imagination is so we set a lot of limits published a lot of papers but we didn't reach our goal we didn't discover (laughs) gravitational waves
1: but that duality i think is one of the reasons why the public should really consider funding fundamental science because of the fact that the scientist's goal is that discovery and the public's goal is uh, you know the things that come out of it and but, but
0: my concern now is 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 a real one just for a minute and that is 22 years ago uh the nsf which is our Funding agency for basic science, physical mm-hmm. science, is uh, uh, the main source, and it's really a. It's really, I think, the, the head of the NSF, the head meaning not just the person that's ahead, but kind of was screwed on right, and meaning the values of the NSF was to do the best science mm-hmm. at the time we proposed this, and so you can ask why would they fund fund this, I think it was really based on the people at the top of the NSF choosing to do something that was high risk, that's always dangerous, Mm -hmm. Uh, um, or take risks to reach because of the scientific potential was so great. I'm not at all convinced that, and this happened through 20 years, that they kept, we were a line item in Congress, so we Mm -hmm. could have been attacked at any time. Different directors at the NSF were there, but somehow they protected us and defended us and we got our funding. We produced and that we never promised something we didn't deliver in terms of technically and mm. and sensitivity and blah, blah, blah. But if you ask now, would that be possible for the NSF? I'm not sure, and it's not due to the people in the NSF, it's due to uh, the US government and being requiring so much accountability mm-hmm. that when people spend a lot of money they have to report, it puts a cons- they, conservatism not, yeah. in the system that uh, we don't, um, that doesn't allow for taking chances or risks as much as it was true 20 years ago when we started this. And it's true for smaller science as well. Inside the NSF, because there's limited amount of money, There's lots of proposals. They grade them. uh, They send them out for review, which is what we should do to to other scientists. They're reviewed. And if you get all excellence, you got a good chance to get funded. If you get some, you know, three excellence but two goods or something, you probably have less chance. Mm -hmm. And the ones that aren't all excellence can be because it's not as good. Or it could be that it wasn't convincing to the reader that, they were going to be able to do what they said they could do. In other words, mm-hmm. the risk taking becomes minimized in the system more and more over time. Mm-hmm. Yet, to do great science, you have to take risks. Right, right. So there's how do this we? This is a weird,
1: uh, uh, like, contradiction where, uh, for any kind of government waste, I've seen this where people want to. Everyone wants to to cut down on government waste, but there's a point where. Cut the, the action of creating the bureaucracy that cuts down on the waste itself is the way it ends yeah, up being yeah, the yeah, waste. Yeah, yeah. And there's a you know, there's a minimum spot there. Um. so in our case it's the risk
0: to do great to do great science. You have yeah. to take risks. Uh, to do other things, um, you have to make the risk level so low, mm-hmm. say in safety issues sometimes. That uh, it becomes outrageously expensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the,
1: the main, one of the limiting factors in the stuff that we do in nuclear physics is definitely safety. That's yeah, always yeah, exactly that's and, one of the and, biggest costs. Yeah. That's always the top. And so top. you can you can never
0: <laughs> make the chance that there be accidents go to or yeah. go to zero. Right. And so we're, you we you find the put, right yeah, balance, and and then when there is an accident uh, in one of these large laboratories, the the consequences are so dire that mm. there's so much spent on making things safe. Sometimes that uh, that it becomes too expensive.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, and, and and just. The public does not want to hear and nuclear the accident yeah, at all. Yeah, that is just yeah, not a thing yeah, that people yeah. can handle. Yeah. Even when there's significantly other, more dangerous things like driving to the lab, for example, is one so, of the most dangerous things you right. can do. Um, falling so, off a ladder or something like right. that. So back want, to my story. The yeah. day 2015. <laughs> so
0: 2015, uh, 2015. We had four in the morning, 4:50 in the morning, in Lu- in Louisiana. They saw this and few microseconds, uh, milliseconds later, they saw it in, uh, in Hanford, Washington, mm-hmm. and so we had a candidate. For me, I woke up in Santa Monica, where I live, and saw my morning email, which is unfortunately the first thing I do, Is uh-huh. l- like a, other addicts read my email, and uh, and there was a whole list of these things that we get anyway, I mean, usually they're false, but these looked not so false, and so it became serious immediately uh, after looking at it and talking to my colleagues and all the meetings we had, right away, it, it was much more serious than anything we'd seen before. And uh, I think some people maybe reacted <clears throat> in, after looking for a long time in what you expect a eureka moment. I, I didn't have that personally. You just just fear, <laughs> total panic, uh, uh, total worry about what we're doing. What's wrong? And it uh, focused yeah. on two things. One, one uh, is that uh, uh, maybe this was the one, the first one. Maybe for some reason, it should have been three things, but it was two. And the, the, there were two real ones that we had to work on, and we other people identified as well. And and the first was that. Uh, This was a new instrument, we had just turned it on, it really wasn't what we have been using for 10 or 15 years. We had a lot of different instrumentation.
1: So there's more room for something unknown to happen. And
0: and so our traditional understanding that this was different than everything we have seen before relied on a different instrument than we had now. And so we needed to take more data to see that there wasn't random chance that we would just have these kind of events anyway. Mm -hmm. And that required running for a month. Basically, you could calculate how much she had to run to just do this. We had a way to do that, and so one month of running was needed. Well, that tempered enthusiasm All right, for me.
1: This was two weeks in, right? It, well, this there's... was
0: this this happened five or six days in, and oh. we needed an, <laughs> another month's running. We do that because we look at fake uh, coincidences between our two detectors that are out of time meaning right. they're not real they're mm. fake because these and things
1: are are jiggling and naturally wiggling and or you know each and so one there's of some them, random chance that yeah, you throw the die they, they happen both at the same of them time. happen
0: yeah so we look at them mm. when they're not in time with each other right. and, and, and we have to get enough bins to be able to do that to show that it is unlikely right
1: and then in, in in turn not just that they happen at the same time but i guess they could happen anywhere in the sky so you have to look at all the possible combinations of time delays and things like that. Right. And so
0: you can calculate quickly how much do we need to convince ourselves that this is unlikely Uh to happen in a zillion years, and, and that's what this is called Five Sigma, and uh, then we can declare something. So that requires a month, that tempers mm-hmm. enthusiasm. It's about the, the odds
1: s- of, a, of a royal flush, calculate that. Yeah, five sigma yeah, is about yeah, a royal yeah, flush. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> and the, the second, which is maybe more intriguing, mm-hmm. uh, is that maybe, and this went through minds of not just myself, but certainly myself immediately, that there was, uh, that this was a rogue event mm-hmm. meaning that somebody or some bodies somehow had planted it in our data either Uh by, uh, you know, getting a hold of the data at some point and, so, so a it.
1: malicious hacker or
0: someone yeah, from malicious. the... So yeah, malicious. So how could that happen? Uh-huh. So so uh, we, we're not on the internet a uh-huh. uh, long time. So you can't do it through the internet. Mm-hmm. It has to be uh, purposely we're not on the internet. The NSF wouldn't let us Oh, anyway. yeah, absolutely. And absolutely. Uh, But it's partially because we have lasers and so forth that we can't be on the internet. They didn't want us to even be able to in a most secure system we could be able to control the device, say, from Caltech. Mm -hmm. They wanted it local and Mm -hmm. and we understood that. We had a similar issue with an experiment I worked on. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, at one time we hoped to have a control room here at Caltech where we could Mm -hmm. fix things, mostly because the experts are here, not at the site. You don't want Mm -hmm. them to jump on an airplane all the time. So we have a passive way to look at things here, but we can't change anything. Mm -hmm. So that, so that, uh, so it would have to be done locally. But not totally, because in the end, we bring the data from these two observatories, one Mm. in Louisiana, one in Washington, to Caltech, and the data is merged at that point. So Mm -hmm. the first question is, once it's merged, can you just superpose an event on top of that? Mm -hmm. And that would be software done. But then that's pretty easy to to dispel by just going back enough so that they were still separate before they were sent. And we have the data, so we could go back. But there's more than that. We can go back further into the apparatus and see if somebody could you know, somehow uh, inject it mechanically, because we have methods to put false events into the apparatus of something you referred to earlier. Uh, and so it takes a while to trace back. Again, what yeah. we did there is develop a, a red team, if you want, a, a team of experts that we have inside that were given the job to go find everything and report back to us. And that took about a month. Mm -hmm. Okay. So while some of my colleagues were high on a cloud, I was still worried (laughs) about both these things. And by mid-October, so this was September, by mid-October, we had both results. And beyond doubt, we proved that there was no rogue event. Uh, Now we have so much security, it would be absolutely impossible. But because
1: uh, you guys weren't even running long enough that you yeah, thought you had to worry yeah, about this yeah, yet. Yeah, yeah exactly.
0: <laughs> and uh, so we proved it for that event. but And then it, by mid-October, then, we were convinced. But then we had to see what this was, and that would require another month's work. And, and that was using numerical relativity and all these things we said. And, and by mid-November, things looked really good. I mean, not only did this event stand up, but you could show – what it was that it was these two heavy black holes and that they were, you know, mer- merging and they looked very much like general relativity and blah, blah, blah. And so, along with my colleagues, I agreed, I didn't dissent, that we would write a paper. And uh, we wanted to write a paper and have it refereed something very important to physicists before we went public. We really wanted to make sure that what we did was right. And defendable by experts looking at it before we went public, Mm -hmm. because you don't want somebody later to be able to point out something you did wrong. And you want the stamp of approval on it.
1: Although sometimes the funny part is uh, you find out a a group like that has made a discovery when suddenly they stop talking about anything that's Mm. going on. And And I think that that happened There were rumors. (laughs) There were
0: rumors. And... uh, and those rumors were out, and our big fear was not the rumors. That's fine. The rumors are bad if you end up not having something because right. you made right. a lot of publicity and then mm-hmm. you disappoint. If if the rumors were there and then we had the event, which we did, it only helps. It builds up a lot of right okay. excitement. <laughs> our big worries a little was a little different than that. What if the key? Some of the key graphs or results got out, not the rumors that we had something, but, but got out, then we're in a position where we have to defend ourselves mm-hmm. or, or explain them, if you want, in detail before we're ready to. Mm-hmm. And being ready to means we've kind of got the whole arguments in place. We wrote it up. We um, uh, had it refereed and so forth. At that point, it's ironclad. We think we can defend anything that's there. Um, and so th- That's what we kind of aimed to do and tried to keep it as secure as we could. But there were rumors all over the place, Mm -hmm. as there are now. I'll come back to that. (laughs) And there were rumors all over the place. And... uh we had this idea then that we would. There's a method. I used to be president of the American Physical Society. And in the American Physical Society, the main journal that we have is Physical Review Letters, which is mm-hmm. where we decided to publish, mm-hmm. which is I had strong feelings that we should. It was kind of loyalty. Mm-hmm. And it's a very important journal. Anyway, we were going to publish in Physio of Letters. And in order to be able to accommodate big discoveries like this, Physio of Letters, when asked, will. Uh, if they're if it looks important enough, we'll let you exceed the page limit that they have normally and also referee it in a accelerated way and a very private way. Mm-hmm. And so we had gone to them and warned them that we had something and uh, that we would turn this in and they would turn it around in a couple of weeks. And it was going to be de- something like December 1st, mm-hmm. uh, 2015. Uh, we weren't quite ready on December 1st because – when you have a thousand people in a collaboration, you can imagine the arguments are about every adjective that you <laughs> use it, yeah. in the in the paper. <laughs> so, you know, is it an observation? Is it a discovery of what you saw? It doesn't matter. Every word that mm-hmm. kind of, uh, that's a choice is just. So we had the paper which was written very well, kind of in readability, but we were doing the final things, and it took us another week. Mm-hmm. So it was like the end of the first week in December that we went back to Fizrev Letters, and they. Th- I'm telling you this is a personal story. I'll get back to why in a minute. <laughs> okay. So uh, here I was just doing this all and had bought the argument that this was ironclad and everything, and uh, we called them again, ready to submit, say, December 7th or some date like that. And they said they couldn't do it in a couple of weeks now because Christmas vacation was pending. We hadn't thought that out. <laughs> and so the uh, uh, referees couldn't get back to them in time. They'd have to do it, hold it over January. So we decided not to submit it right away. Might as well not get it out in the system mm-hmm. as much as it should be secure. We'll wait till January.
1: Because they'd be off at break spreading rumors about it no, rather than it. They're not it. supposed to, but so we the, just we decided to hold it. They have too much eggnog yeah. and they tell their whole family. And, and then sort of and we were still running at that point. Uh.
0: And on December twenty sixth, we saw our second event. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I have to admit that despite all of this story that I just told, I had a sigh of relief
1: because that made it feel yeah, real that yeah that made it real
0: <laughs> and there's a history in physics of people declaring uh, a discovery based on a single event oh yeah uh, Caltech, that even. that, yeah. that or, can be right or mm-hmm. be wrong and uh, and I'll give two examples uh, that people that are that can probably relate to one is the most, fam- the most important theory we have in particle physics, the quark model, or the idea of SU3, which was Murray-Gell-Mann. When that first came out, uh, it, it brought together for the first time all these discovered particles in particle physics, mm-hmm. and there was one missing. When it, when you went through the mathematics of, uh, of the quark model that Murray-Gell-Mann put forward, and that was called the omega minus. And so he predicted that there was a missing particle exactly what the mass would be, because you knew the other particles, what its uh, characteristic quantum numbers would be, and so forth, and then there was a search for it immediately at Brookhaven, in these big bubble chambers, at Brookhaven, at CERN, and in 1960s, I guess it was Berkeley. So uh, anyway, the uh, it was found at Brookhaven, and uh, exactly the right mass, exactly the right everything, and it was beautiful. All the things that don't always happen, like neutral particles like photons converted so you could see them and reconstruct the event totally over constrained. And and so on the basis of one event, it was a great discovery and that made the the theory believed by everybody. Mm -hmm. A second one was a little closer. It was even closer to home for me because I was doing it at the time. In in about 1980 or 79, uh, a Dutch theorist showed that uh, one of the Big goals of physics, that is a a unified theory, would require, if it used the same mathematics we use for doing, say, particle physics, non abelian gauge theories, that if it had the same mathematics, there had to be, in nature, magnetic monopoles, Mm -hmm. single charged magnetic poles like we have in electricity and magnetism, of course- Everybody's wanted that, but didn't for years because mm-hmm. uh, ever since people wrote down Maxwell's equations, right, right. And they look exactly alike. Yeah, yeah there's, people wanted to see. you it. have a, a lack of symmetry in those mm-hmm. equations because we have single electric charges but no single magnetic charge. So they've been looked at in a zillion ways. Mm-hmm. But, and w- when uh, when that was announced uh, by, when the paper was written by a theorist named De Hooft, um, uh, he ended up teaching in a summer school in Scotland at the same time I was teaching in the summer school in Scotland, a different subject. And I used to lecture after him. We'd lectured every other day, and he lectured, then I lectured. I didn't understand almost anything he said. Mm-hmm. It was about unified I follow, theories.
1: I, I follow him on Twitter and he just randomly tweets his, his latest insights and I cannot follow yeah. it. And <laughs> so, but
0: it was a great place for me to do the final uh, uh, work on my lecture because I lectured right after him and mm-hmm. since I didn't understand most of what he said. But somewhere along the way he talked about magnetic monopoles coming from having to be there in these unified theories. And, what I re- and then I, started, I had known, of, because I was in Berkeley, there were searches that had been done on accelerators, so I knew quite a bit about what had been done. I didn't have a research library near me, but from everything I could tell, all the searches that had been done up to that date, this is 1978, were irrelevant because without knowing it, they had assumed that the mass of the monopole was something like the mass of other elementary particles. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, I guess. It and can be. Instead, the mass of these monopoles would be the mass of unification. And that was 10 to the 15th times heavier. Mm-hmm. And if they're 10 to the 15th times heavier, they couldn't be produced on accelerators. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't stop in moon rocks, for example. Moon rocks, one of the first things that was looked for was magnetic monopoles. <laughs> but if they're normal mass, they come uh-huh. in and stop, and you'd have this density of moon. But if they're heavy, they go right through the moon. So. Uh, so I realized, along with many others, that uh, it's a new ball game. No one mm. had seen magnetic monopoles. Monopoles
1: and, through the moon. That sounds like a great album title. Yeah. So so, <laughs> I, like, so I had a,
0: invented an experiment deep underground, which I went and did. And mm. it was in oh, Italy, it? at the Grand Sasso. Oh, that's how,
1: I just worked there. Yeah. That's what, when I went. And
0: this was the macro experiment. Uh-huh. And the first M in the word macro meant monopoles. Mm. That's what we went to do. Oh. And the idea was to build a huge detector to do that because the predictions that you could make not from fundamental theory but from the fact that uh, astrophysically there are magnetic fields and if you have too many monopoles you short out the magnetic fields you could put some limit on how many there could be and you tended to, it didn't tend to be severe that it couldn't be detected but the fact that they existed meant that a detector had to be pretty big and that's where we ended up going there Uh, at Stanford uh, a, a physicist a very good physicist didn't pay attention to how big it had to be instead he picked a great technique which is to take a wire and a superconducting loop and if a magnetic monopole went through it would create a current around it and that current would be exactly a certain amount and uh, in his little ring one night when no one was in the lab but it wasn't It wasn't a rogue event. He detected an event, but no one was there to do checks and so forth. And in the morning, they found this event because they recorded it. It was a very small experiment where they actually left it at night when they took data. And that experiment was wrong, but no one ever knows why. We just have done the experiment thousands of millions of times better and never saw another event. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of excitement in 1981 when he uh, announced the event. He's a very good physicist, but it's basically declaring victory, if you want, or a discovery based on one event. So I had history yeah, in one different. direction, history in the other direction, right. both of which were pretty close to me. Uh-huh. And so I had uh, yes. concerns deep underneath, no matter what we saw, that somehow, somehow, despite ourselves, we were either being fooled or fooling ourselves. Mm-hmm. And it was not, I didn't realize this at the time, it wasn't until we saw a second event, which was quite different in nature and so forth, that I was completely convinced.
1: Okay. So, yeah, the worst, I guess, would have been an exact copy of the first one. <laughs> yeah. it, it <laughs> was would exactly, have been horrible. <laughs> and, and
0: this was different, so different mm. that it used different techniques for us to pull it out of the noise and uh, lived a long time in our apparatus compared to the first one. It was lighter particles. And um,
1: But uh, n- and now we have a now new we've re- detector. We've right? reported four. Okay. But there we also, just this week, there was a, a new detector yeah, yeah. So we data. have a. So
0: we we the last event that we detected has. What's great about this is everybody's excited by what we did and discovered something, but uh, we uh, it's just keeps paying off in the science and it's only going to mm-hmm. get better. So one problem is that what we see are astronomical objects somehow, and so you can ask whether they're seen by any astronomical. Um, facilities. And to do that, we have to know where they come from. Mm -hmm. And with two LIGO detectors, we can't tell. It's basically triangulation that mm-hmm. tells. We tell a little bit. Because
1: it's two points and, you know, the, the two, time two, delay, so yeah, you can only yeah. make a circle on the sky. Yeah, roughly. and Maybe if you look at
0: our first paper, you're right, and not quite, because <laughs> not quite. we actually you, show you it comes detectors. from the southern hemisphere. Uh, okay. And why? How do we do that? This is a little subtlety, just because you said it would be a ring in the sky if you have two. Mm-hmm. The two detectors are at different configurations. The, the, they're uh, halfway across the U.S., and an interferometer doesn't have a spherical acceptance. Its, oh, yeah, a, it's, its antenna a, pattern is different depending on whether, where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. And so by looking measures at, the, at the, the wiggles.: or, Yeah. Or, or, and so looking at, like. at the amplitude in the two, and not just the time mm-hmm. that it arrives, we were able to see that it came from the southern hemisphere. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, southern hemisphere is pretty <laughs> big, and we could limit it a little bit, but you really need a third detector. We've mm-hmm. been waiting for the third detector to come online, which is not us. It's a detector that's a French, um, Italian originally, and now Dutch and Polish a detector in, in Italy near Pisa. And uh, they came online this summer. And uh, the fourth event that we've reported uh, was seen in
1: middle of August. Yeah, so a little graphic where it was, it's a nice little uh, pinpoint uh, now in the yeah, sky. Yeah, okay.
0: and so we show on that graphic what, we, what happens from our, they're not quite as good as us yet. Maybe won't be, I don't know, but but even with them not working as well as we, they see the event enough to actually constrain where it is to more than 10 times better than we did on our own by, by what we had. So that's great because it means for the future that we can try to connect what we see with uh, others. That fits into a rumor mm-hmm. that you just asked me. Oh, you know, <laughs>
1: which is the... Which is H- the following,
0: H- that black holes are not gonna be seen by any astronomical instrument. That's by their nature, they don't emit mm-hmm. anything. But if we see other things, other phenomenon that aren't black holes, then they may have astronomical counterparts. Like neutron stars. Yeah. yeah. And the reason we look online and we saw this first event very quickly, uh, isn't because we're curious online, it's much easier to do, a, do it offline, but it's because the events that we look for are transient. They come and they're gone. Mm-hmm. Some phenomenon happen, and it comes and then it's gone. So we somehow have to, to tell uh, that we see something to astronomers so they can look if they want to uh, uh, quickly. And Mm -hmm. so we have algorithms to quickly look at the data and. So they can
1: point their telescopes. So they can point their telescopes.
0: Uh And then we send them what information we have and say, we might well say, oops, Mm -hmm. we're not sure, but this is the best we can do online. We try to Mm -hmm. keep that down to a rate that doesn't make them constantly have to do something and mm-hmm. not so rarely that they forget about us so that rate ends <laughs> yeah. up being something like a one to two times a month okay. then so that's we just set, a whole new world we of set a level of now. one or two oh. times a month oh. but they're not real necessarily it's just the loudest phenomenon that we saw mm-hmm. which is mostly not real uh, at a rate of one or two times a month the real events that we've seen have happened at you know every few months now we've seen four and something like eight or ten months of running, mm-hmm. so every few months. So mostly they're not real, uh, but we send what we have. We, we sent uh, information on, on an, uh, an event, so this part's public, uh, in August, and uh, that event had masses of the two elements that were consistent with being neutron stars rather than black holes. Mm-hmm.
1: Not these large things, like yeah.
0: Bl- yeah. You know, somewhere yeah. under three yeah. solar masses. Exactly. And uh, that alerted the astrono- astronomers. They've uh, not kept as quiet as we keep. Of course, we didn't <laughs> expect them to keep. Yeah, I heard about uh, it somehow. <laughs> and, and so uh, it's around mm. that they see something, but we haven't. Uh, but we see many things that are real, many that aren't in this alarm system. Mm. You guys, we're still s- analyzing our data. Uh, we've given that particular. Uh, this, we finished running our, our run at the end of August. It took us six months to announce the first event, so it takes a while for us to do analysis. But we've given that particular event high priority, and we'll uh, say whether it's real or not in a few weeks. Okay.
1: Well, so far, you guys keep secrets better than the White House, so you're doing something (laughs) right. Uh, Thank you, um, Professor uh, Barish. it's been great talking to you, and I hope the next time I, I see you, you'll be a Nobel laureate, and I have a lot of confidence you do. You know, I know you, you were cautious about the first event. And I could see your eyes are cautious about it this time. So uh, thanks for coming on the show.
2: It was a lot of
0: fun. Thank right, you. Thanks.